Well, this morning we have a, a guest speaker with us. He's not that much of a guest in that he's, I think, came four times before in January and February. But some of you haven't heard him speak yet. So I just want to introduce you to him. Dr. Fowler, after serving two pastorates, one in Indiana and the other at Runnymede Baptist Church in Toronto, which actually planted Royal York Baptist Church. Um, Dr. Fowler has taught theology since 1987 at Central Baptist Seminary and Heritage College and Seminary. And having retired last year from his full-time role, he is now Professor Emirates at Heritage. He serves as an elder at Grandview Baptist Church in Kitchener, and he has been married to Donna for 50 years, and they have four children and six grandchildren. And he has been my prof, my theology prof, for the last three and a half years, and I've greatly enjoyed him as my professor. So Dr. Fowler, come. We're, we're glad you're here with us to share God's word. Well, it's, it's great to be back with you, um, especially on this weekend. This Sunday gives me a chance to um, once again congratulate Peter for graduating from Heritage Seminary yesterday. Uh, yes, that's all, all very fresh reality. So I, uh, it's my privilege to do whatever I could to make it difficult. Uh, for him to get there um, along the way. Uh, that's, that's what professors are all about, providing appropriate challenges for learning and growing and developing. And it's been a great pleasure to see the way Peter has faced that challenge and, and has grown as, uh, not just as a student, but as a servant of the Lord, which is what seminary education is all about anyway. So it's wonderful to be here with the, uh, the growing family. It's also wonderful to drive at the end of April instead of January and February on the 401. So I, I'm delighted to be here with you today and uh, really delighted to, um, to observe what God has been doing here at Royal York and at Grace Fellowship and uh, bringing together people here. Um, I. I managed to publicize it in a blog that I wrote a while back. Our seminary has a, has a blog and faculty take turns each week writing a, a post. And uh, so I, I wrote my last blog about what happened here. Um, and the fact that it, it, it points up the reality that we do belong to one another beyond individual congregational lines. And, and so I, I want to commend uh, the, the people of Grace Fellowship Church for their willingness to say we're in this together. It's not about building our own kingdom. It's about advancing the Lord's rule on planet Earth and, and thus bringing about uh, what is happening here. So I, my prayer is that God will, in fact, in, enable you to, uh, to glorify the Lord by building up one another and, and in building up one another, uh, equip one another to individually and corporately uh, make the gospel known and advance the gospel in, in, in this city. It's one of the world's great cities. Uh, we lived here for 15 years. Part of my heart is still here, but part of my heart's also in Brazil where I taught a couple of times, in Uganda where I taught a couple of times, because God's work is, is for all nations. 
And uh, I trust that, that you will be significant agents of advancing that gospel here. As you do that, you're going to confront skepticism. You're going to confront people who find the Christian faith, who find the gospel implausible for a whole variety of reasons. We really are living in a very different context now. As we were driving here this morning, my, my wife was, was telling me something about recent experience in, in the public schools in Waterloo Region. Uh, my wife still works on a casual basis doing immunizations in junior high schools. And, and recently, right before and after Easter, one of her colleagues, also a believer, in, in talking with these students and trying to calm them down so they can stick a needle in their arm, um, asks, which can be a challenge I've, I've heard, um, but just asking questions like, so what are you going to be doing on Easter weekend or what did you do on Easter weekend? And two full days, one student, right? One student mentioned going to church on Easter Sunday. So that's the reality we face. And, and we encounter people who, who just find it hard to believe that it can all be really true. And I, I think the evidence shows that the, that the major cause for skepticism in our part of the world today is what we call the problem of evil. How, how can this world, this messed up world with all the evil that is in it actually be God's world. How, how can there be a God who is perfectly loving and infinitely powerful and yet this world be what it is? I remember the time I saw that. I'm sure that was what was being expressed. One day when I was on the subway um, headed toward the University of Toronto, uh, at one of the points where the train goes above ground, I, I look through the windows and on the back of, of the Bloor Street shop, shops, I saw on a white wall in black letters, God is dead or doesn't care. I have no idea who wrote that, but it's pretty obvious the person was struggling with the problem of evil. How can this world, my experience of it, be what it is? If, if God is who people claim he is. There's all kinds of other evidence to show the significance of that. Um, for example, how many of you remember Harold Kushner's book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People? Anybody? Okay, that's early 1980s. Kushner was a Jewish rabbi and, and wrote the book out of some powerful a painful personal experience. But among other things in the book, he said, there is only one question which really matters. Why do bad things happen to good people? All other theological conversation is intellectually diverting. Virtually every meaningful conversation I have ever had with people on the subject of God and religion has either started with this question or gotten around to it before long. And in the book, Kushner gives an answer, which is frankly very bad. 
His answer is, give God a break, because God is really good, but he's not all-powerful. Um, don't know how you read the Hebrew Bible with one eye open and come to that conclusion, but Kushner did. Unfortunately, many people found the book really useful. In fact, I knew a longtime leader in a fellowship Baptist church not too far from here who admitted that he had found the book so helpful he had given away a dozen copies of it. Really is a perplexing problem. How many of you remember the name Charles Templeton? Okay. For many of you, um, you're younger than I am, and you don't remember Templeton. But of course, I didn't grow up in Canada, so I didn't know Templeton back then. I first heard about Templeton when I was a seminary student in the USA, when I heard a, a sermon preached by a fellow student who was Canadian. Templeton, uh, in, in the aftermath of World War II, traveled the world with Billy Graham preaching the gospel. Thousands and thousands of people came to faith through his preaching. Then he was the pastor of Avenue Road Church, uh, now Bayview Glen Church in Toronto. By all accounts, Templeton was the great preacher of, of the two when he and Graham traveled. And, and he went away for some further study at Princeton Seminary and in the process became an agnostic. And in his book, Farewell to God, which he wrote near the end of his life, he makes clear that the major reason for that was the problem of evil. There's no way, he concluded, there could be a really good and powerful God with, if this world and its suffering are the way they are. So he, he, he became an agnostic in the 1950s and he, and he was a confirmed agnostic to the end of his life. In fact, I, I spoke to a nurse who worked in the long-term care home where he died. And so she had dealt with him in his last days and she verified he was that to the end of his life. He, he put it this way, in the 1950s he saw a cover of Life magazine, picture of a woman in Africa holding in her arms her dead child who died because of famine. And Templeton concluded all it took was a little rain. And so he became an agnostic. How many of you have heard of Bart Ehrman? Okay, few of us. Bart Ehrman had an evangelical conversion experience as a teenager, graduated from Moody Bible Institute and Wheaton College, and, and then went on, as it happens, to Princeton Seminary, did his PhD there, and, and is now a professor at the University of North Carolina. Yeah, and with a focus on New Testament and early Christian studies. But in spite of that background, of his teenage conversion experience, Moody Bible Institute and Wheaton College, Ehrman became and remains an agnostic. And in his book, God's Problem, he says, if there is an all-powerful and loving God in this world, why? is there so much excruciating pain and unspeakable suffering? 
The problem of suffering has haunted me for a very long time. It was what made me begin to think about religion when I was young, and it was what led me to question my faith when I was older. Ultimately, it was the reason I lost my faith. And he, he explains, I didn't go easily. I, I went kicking and screaming away from faith. But in the end, he said, I could no longer explain how there can be a good and all-powerful God actively involved with this world, given the state of things. Now, the, those are some words, Templeton and, and Ehrman, of, of skeptics who've become agnostics because they say it's implausible that, that you would believe in a good and powerful God if this world is the way it is. But it's not just skeptics. It's not just unbelievers who wrestle with the question. Believers wrestle with the question. On Good Friday, um, at our church in Kitchener, I, I happened to be sitting just down the row from a young couple whom, whom I had never met. And, and so when the service was over, I, I slipped down to bed and introduced myself to Sylvie and Dennis. And, and they said, well, we, we know who you are because we've heard you preach here. And, and within a minute, Sylvie was saying to me, so I've got questions about the problem of evil. Okay, well, we just met, so we can talk now about the philosophical, theological problem of evil. It's a legitimate question, and the question... The question is raised by those who wrote scripture. And you might have guessed by now that we're headed to Psalm 73, which was read for us earlier. So I invite your attention to that psalm, which, which I take to be, in many ways, the classic biblical text that deals with the, the angst and the doubt that believers sometimes feel about why this world is the way it is. When the, when the biblical writers wrestle with the problem of evil, it's usually, it's usually about what we might call the problem of distributive justice. Why, why, why do bad people prosper and good people suffer so often in this world? Why is the world so unjust? And, and at a personal level, why, why do I, when I'm seeking to serve God faithfully, suffer while my agnostic neighbor prospers? So Asaph, a, a, apparently a leader of the musicians of ancient Israel, um, in Psalm 73, functioning as a prophet, spoke in the word of the Lord, by recounting for us his own personal narrative, his own personal journey of dealing with this problem. He starts in recounting his own experience with his, his initial basic confession of faith in, in verse 1. And we might paraphrase it as, God is good to good people. God is good to Israel. God's good to those who are pure in heart. And there's every reason to affirm that, and it is true. God is the righteous judge of all the earth. The, the Bible of his day would have made that clear. 
God also made those covenant promises to Israel through Moses that we would find recorded late in Deuteronomy. If if you as a nation keep my, my statutes, if you obey my law, if you practice what I command, then I will bless you in all these ways. But if you're rebellious and disobedient, you'll suffer all these curses. God is good to good people. But that's a very brief statement at the beginning of the psalm. And the next 13 verses tell us about Asaph's experience, which could be summed up as, I've been good for nothing. Good for nothing means a variety of things, of course. I mean, I mean it may mean a person's just totally bad, or it may be something like... Um, you know, m- most of you are, well, Peter gets paid to be good, others are good for nothing, you know, things like that. Um, Asaph's point is, I've, Lord, I've been serving you faithfully, and what it's got me is trouble. While I look around me at the wicked, and they're often prospering. I mean, he says, my, my feet had almost slipped, verse 2. I, I almost lost my faith as I tried to understand it. I envied the arrogant. I saw they, they were prosperous, verse three. Verse four, I saw they were, they were healthy. So, they, so they, were, they were the healthy, they were the wealthy, they were the proud, verse six. They, they were the powerful. People followed them. And, and not only not only did righteous people feel frustration and doubt when they saw what was happening, they, in verse 11, they would say things like, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? In other words, the unrighteous were saying to people like Asaph and, and prophets who spoke truth from the Lord, you repeat to us things like those curses that the Lord threatened through Moses. And you say, we're the wicked who are not obeying the word of the Lord, and therefore we ought to suffer all that, so why are we not suffering? Where is this God who said that and who knows all things? The point being, you're out of your mind to believe in God in that way. So God's honor was at stake. It wasn't just Asaph's suffering, but, but Asaph says that's what it's like. That's what the wicked are like, verse 12. And so he concludes, verse 13, it's in vain that I've kept my heart pure. I've been good for nothing. I've been good, and it's gotten me trouble. Fact, verse 14, all day long I've been afflicted. Every morning brings new punishments. I just, I wake up in the morning asking, so what bad thing is going to happen to me today? So Asaph said, Lord, I, I mean, I, I almost stumbled completely out of any affirmation of faith and obedience. And that's what happens sometimes. When, when we wrestle with this problem of evil and how this world can be the world of a good and powerful God who's still active in it. 
For some people, it, it happens at a philosophical level. I mean, how can those three assertions all be true? God is, God is infinitely powerful, God is perfectly good, and there is evil in this world. So for some people, it's at that level, and so it's, we have to discuss it at that level. But for Asaph and most of us, it's at a much more personal level. How is it that when I'm seeking to serve God faithfully, I get cancer, or my wife gets cancer? How is it that when I'm seeking to, to be a faithful disciple of Jesus, my spouse dies of a heart attack while, while the wicked people next door are enjoying health and wealth? How is it that, that a, a church of faithful believers in Jesus suffers a tornado or a hurricane or a cyclone or a terrorist bomber? Why, 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 if God is, desires what is good and has the power to make it happen, how is it that ISIL destroys those churches, those people in Sri Lanka. The, the questions press themselves upon us, and Asaph recounts his own experience with it. And, and so when he thinks about it, when he, his reflection in verses 15 and 16 is, if, if I had just blurted out everything I was thinking, I, I know, Lord, I, I really would have betrayed your children. I would, have, I would have caused multitudes of them to have the same doubts that I'm having. And so when I reflect on it, he says, verse 16, it, it, just, it was like a heavy weight hanging on me. It troubled me deeply. It, it's like my experience in the classroom when students say, I don't, I don't get it. I mean, God's will and human agency, I mean, I, I, can't, I can't neatly figure out how they fit together. You're the professor, you should give us a neat solution. And, but that's when I have to say, God is God and we are not. God is infinite, we are finite, and we don't understand how it all fits together. And, and sometimes students are pretty burdened about that. And sometimes we're pretty burdened about trying to figure out how we make sense of the way God is sustaining and governing this world. But there are, there are multiple kinds of doubt. There, there's, there's a kind of doubt that is, is faith seeking greater understanding. And, and there's a kind of doubt that is simply looking for reasons not to believe. Asaph was, was experiencing a, a doubt that is still looking for understanding. And so beginning at verse 17 down to verse 20, he, he tells us a bit about the answer he found. Now, be, before I point you to those words and we think about that, let, let me just do this disclaimer up front. If, if you're expecting a professor of theology to give you a really deep and profound answer, you may be disappointed. 
So I just make that disclaimer up front. If you want to take back the honorarium, that's okay. Um, but, but Asaph did come to a conclusion, to an answer. And so he says in verse 17, it began to change when I entered the sanctuary of God. I began reorienting my thinking, thinking about God and God's work. And, and, and my release from the doubt came when I understood their end, their destiny. When I understood the destiny of the wicked. And the point he will make is, I was reminded that God is going to judge the world in righteousness and God will make all things right in his own time and in his own way. In other words, the solution Asaph found was give God time. He, he recognized that God could not be the righteous judge of all the earth if he allowed unrepentant, unbelieving people to prosper indefinitely while allowing the righteous to suffer indefinitely. That would not be acting as the righteous judge of the earth. But, but he relearned the truth that, that God has not promised to right every wrong immediately. But he has promised to right every wrong ultimately. And so he began to reflect on the fact that while he may be envying the, the arrogant and the wicked around him and the way they're prospering right now, they're not going to prosper eternally. So he says at verse 18, you place them on slippery ground. They are on a slippery slope. They think it's level, but it's not. And, and, you, you, and you're going to cast them down to ruin. Verse 19, suddenly they're going to be destroyed, swept away by tears. It really will happen. And, and in the end, Asaph said, I realized this, the, the prospering wicked, they're, they're like a dream when one wakes up. When, when you arise, Lord, when you act, when you intervene in the way you have said you will, I don't know when, but when you do, you will despise them as fantasies. When, it, when he says they'll be like a dream when, when one wakes up, it's a way of saying we, we can look back on it then and, and know that, yes, there was something real that was there, and yet it didn't have ultimate reality. It would... It, it's not the kind of thing that will last forever. I, I, don't know about, I don't know how you dream. I just know that now in, in my older years, I tend to dream more actively, I think. I think that's because the longer I live, the more experiences I have, which can somehow randomly show up in dreams. And so last night, I had this, this really strange an active dream, but I can't remember the details. I, I only, I, I remember just a, a very few details. Part of it was trying to make my way across a city. I think it was Toronto, and I had to go through 
tunnels and I had to find the right door and I was happy when I woke up actually to, to be rid of that dream. But I don't remember all the details of it. I, so I know it was there, it was a real personal experience but with no lasting effect. And so Asaph says, I realized God is God and God is righteous and God is powerful and God is going to act and, and in the end, the permanent will be the perfect. And, and those who go on rebelling against God will be punished. And God will, will bring final salvation to his people. So a long-range perspective, Asaph said, helps us think about this. Now, I can imagine that someone here might, might be thinking and wanting to say out loud, that's pie in the sky by and by. I'd really like some help in the here and now. I mean, is that really a solution? Well, there, there, there are several things that could be said to that. Number one, I, I would suggest we, whether, whether we instantly like it or not, that is the consistent perspective of Scripture. It's clearly what goes on here in Asaph's experience as he recounts it. Think of Psalm 37, Psalm of David. The whole psalm is saying over and over and over again in a variety of ways, the wicked may prosper now, but the meek will inherit the earth. God will change it ultimately. Think of uh, the prophet Habakkuk. You might not have read Habakkuk in a while. You might read Habakkuk, who, who says, Lord, you know, your people here the, in Judah, the southern kingdom, are, they're, they're, not, they're acting wickedly. And the Lord says, I'm going to punish them. Good. I'm, I'm going to bring the Babylonians to punish them. And Habakkuk says, not exactly what I had in mind, Lord, because the Babylonians are more wicked than the people here. And the Lord says, and in my time, I will bring them to ruin. I will judge them as well. Because in a mysterious way, God's providential judging and, and disciplining of his covenant people through nations like Assyria and Babylon doesn't mean that what Assyria and Babylon do is good. They get punished too. There's another one of those things we have some trouble sorting out. And so in the end, Habakkuk says, I will patiently wait for you to act. And, and if, if the fig trees don't bloom, if, if, the, if, the, if the olives aren't produced on schedule, if we don't have all the flocks that we want, still I will trust you and I will wait for you to act. And so in the New Testament, in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul says, I'm convinced that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy of being compared to the glory that is to come. So he looked ahead to the end when God would make all things right. And that's what enabled him to deal with the hard reality of the present. So it is the consistent biblical basic answer 
to this problem of how can this world be what it is and how can our experience be what it is. I, I would suggest we also know from personal experience that, that the hope of positive things to come can help us deal with the hard realities of today. I mean, it may be as simple and basic and crass as there is a deposit, pay deposit, that will go into my account um, on the 15th and last of every month. And so struggles I feel at work every day, well, I can deal with them in a variety of ways. And one way is there's actually something positive coming. But here I think would be the bottom line. It's a brute fact that, that every rational person admits that this world is full of injustice, of, of the suffering of people who ought not suffer, some prosperity of people who are wicked. People get away with crimes in, in this world as we know it. It's a brute fact. So you can either have that brute fact with hope that God is going to intervene and make things right, or you can have that brute fact without hope. So do you want the reality we all recognize with hope or without hope? I mean, I should ask you a hard question. I mean, the rational answer is pretty obvious there. So do we understand all God's ways? No. But is he a God in whom we can trust? He's a God who gave his only son to become one of us apart from sin and offer his life, his perfectly obedient life, as the representative obedience suffering living the life we can't live and dying the death that we deserve so that we might be forgiven. That looks like a God whom we can trust to have our well-being in mind, God who really loves us. And so at the end of the psalm, Asaph gives us his mature statement of faith, which essentially is God will make all things right in the end, and God will enable me to persevere while I wait to see that fulfillment. Verse 24 sort of sums it up. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. And so in the end, as he recounts this his mature statement of faith, he reminds us that Faith means believing that God will do what he has promised to do. It doesn't mean creating promises for God. God has not promised that all evil will be punished immediately. And all faithful service will be rewarded immediately. He has promised that ultimately he will judge the world in righteousness. And he will judge the world in righteousness through his son, whom he raised from the dead. And so you don't have to fear 
a judge or a king who is dead, but the ultimate judge and king is not dead. God raised him from the dead, as we affirmed again with the Church Universal last Sunday in a special way. In reality, we affirm it every first day of the week when we gather. And so we wait for the Lord to come to judge the world in righteousness and to make all things new. And if you have that hope that God has sunk deeply into your heart, then you can trust him and serve him now, even when this world is the mess it is. Let's pray. Father, we confess that we we do not pretend to understand all of the ways in which you providentially govern this world, but you have given every convincing evidence that you are the God who loves us, you are the one whom we can trust for today and for eternity. And so we do desire to see glimpses of your kingdom come. We do desire to see previews of righteousness here on planet Earth. And we long for that day when we will see it in its fullness. So today, strengthen our hope and thereby strengthen our faithful obedience as we continue to serve you and make you known, waiting for the fulfillment of all your promises. Empower us, we pray, by your spirit. In the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.